This will be the 19th message in the series of messages on the whole counsel of God. And this morning we're going to be dealing with the spiritual nature of God in this subject, spiritual hope. Spiritual hope. What hope do we have as believers? What do we look for in the days to come? And what is our source of strength in our earthly existence? 1 John chapter 3 and beginning in verse 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Let's have a moment of prayer, shall we? Father, we ask for your leadership and guidance in the message today, and may you give us as the speaker, clear minds, warm hearts to proclaim the truths of your word. We ask that you give the hearer a clear understanding and that their minds might be enabled through your grace to concentrate upon the train of thought that is presented in your word. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. For the past several weeks, we've been thinking along the term that God is a spirit and the implications that flow from this truth in the Scripture. And today we want to close out now this series of messages on the spiritual nature of God with this particular thought, the spiritual hope of a believer. The spiritual hope. Every person, unless they have become despondent and are at the point of suicide, has some hope in life. They look to some source for strength. It may be in wealth, fame, health, prosperity, whatever it may be, something in the universe, or it may be in God or some idol, but every person has something that keeps him going and that produces this desire to achieve and to press on to greater accomplishments and endeavors. Now, what is it that the Christian has as his hope? Now, John says, every man that has this hope in himself, it has an effect upon him, that is, a purifying effect, so that it makes him more like Christ, who also is pure. Now, I'd like for us today to look at three things that are connected with this hope, or two things, actually. One, that we must understand that since God is a spirit, that his blessings upon us are primarily in the spiritual realm, and that our rewards in this life and in the next life are primarily in the spiritual realm, and that when this be the case, then this should drive us to see that our hope is primarily in the spiritual blessings of God because he is a spirit. I invite your attention now to Ephesians chapter 1 to see what some of these spiritual blessings are. If God is a spirit and is to be worshipped in spirit and in truth, then the more spiritual we become, the more like God we become. In Ephesians chapter 1 and beginning in verse 3, Paul says to the church at Ephesus, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Now notice he's concentrating primarily not upon the daily food 
and clothing and so forth that God provides for his people. But he's concentrating upon the spiritual blessings which have been given us in heavenly places where Christ dwells today. And he goes on in the first chapter of Ephesians to list many of these blessings. And the foundation blessing for the child of God was his being chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world in verse 3. We found also in studying here, we can find that one of the other blessings is that we have been made partakers of a purpose of God whereby he has purposed in himself to conform us to the likeness of Jesus Christ. We'll find out what that likeness is as we go along. We see that this involves bringing us into the adoption, into his family, out of the kingdom of Satan, into the family of God. We find that this involves the redemption through the blood of Christ in verse 7. We find this involves forgiveness of sins in verse 7. We find this involves the basis of grace in verse 7. Then we also could go on and we find our calling there in that first chapter. And he lists them step after step, all of the many things that God has done and is doing for the believer in Christ Jesus. Now, we could also go to Romans chapter 8 and have some of these listed there. Romans chapter 8 and beginning in verse 28. What are you thankful for today? You've had a day of thanksgiving. I'm sure you had many things to be thankful for within the physical realm, the meal, the food, and so forth, the fellowship. But what is the primary source from whence our thanksgiving should flow. Look in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Now, here are some of these blessings that are listed again. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Now here again are several blessings that have become ours through the purpose of God in Christ Jesus for sinners. And you and I, if we are in Christ today, have been made partaker of these spiritual blessings. That is, God is a spirit, and he blesses his people primarily in the spiritual realm, dealing with the forgiveness of sin, redemption through his blood, and so forth. These are the things which we as believers need to be concentrating upon as being the source of our strength that drives us on to meet those things which lie ahead of us. In Acts chapter 3, after Christ has now left the scene and he has commissioned his apostles to go forth into the world and to share the news of the message which he gave them, we find there that Peter went up to the temple. And on the way up to the temple, he met a lame man. And the man was lying there, and he held out his hand, expecting to receive some alms or some money from Peter. 
And the individual named Peter said these words to the man. He said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I unto thee. In the name of Christ, then rise up and walk. Now here is the contrast. Rather than Christ's message consisting in material and in physical blessings, here was the source that a man says, I don't have any gold or silver. But such as I have, I give unto you. It shows us that Christ's primary source of blessing in the gospel is in the spiritual realm rather than in the material and in the physical. And many people that go under the guise of Christianity and of Judaism, their hope is not in the gospel, it's not in the spiritual realm, but it's in the material realm. And the source of comfort that they have they draw from their health, from their wealth, from their family, from their jobs, and so forth. But I would ask you today, as I would ask myself many, many times, this question. If all of these things were removed from me, what would cause me to look on? What would keep me from taking the gun and ending it all if my wealth, my health, my family, all that I have was taken from me, then what would I have left? Would I still be willing to look forward to the sun coming up in the morning? Or would I say there's no use in living any longer? What would you say to that, to that question? And could we say then with the psalmist that whom have I in heaven but thee? Could we say that if everything be taken away, we still have the source of blessings which is in Christ Jesus, and that involves the forgiveness of sin, the redemption through his grace. Now, these blessings are primarily spiritual, and they produce spiritual rewards. I hope you catch that. What do you hope to have in heaven? If you have a hope of heaven, what do you hope that heaven will be like that will give you comfort? All of us here today, we have a source of comfort. We've listed those. Strength, health, and so forth. But what do you hope to have in heaven? What do you hope heaven primarily to be? Do you hope that it will be a place in which that if you were not popular here, you'll be very popular there? Do you hope that maybe because you're poor here, you'll have a lot of money there? You hope that because you were never able to finish adding on to that home here, that you have a great mansion in heaven? You hope that because that you don't have good health here, your, your hope of heaven is just that you have good health there? If this is all our conception of what heaven is, I'm afraid that we have a carnal view of God, we have a carnal view of the gospel, and we have a carnal view of our reward which we're going to have in heaven. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 4, Peter says that he has a hope, and that that hope consists in receiving a crown of glory. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 4. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Now notice it is not a crown of gold, or silver, it is a crown of glory. That is our glorification. When we shall be changed from this body into a body like which the Lord has. 
That is, that our crown is not to be viewed as a physical crown that will sit upon our head, but that we shall be crowned with eternal life in the presence of Jesus Christ and possessing a body like He has. This is called our glorification. This is what we look forward to, being like Him. John says we don't know what He's going to be like, but we do know this, that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him. Jesus Christ, since He is risen from the dead, is the possessor of eternal life, and He imparts unto His people eternal life, and one day they shall be crowned with that in the presence of God. That results in our glorification. In Revelation chapter 3, another reward which we shall have that flows from the spiritual nature of God, and that is that we shall sit on a throne. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. Now, what does this consist of? Does this mean then that somehow that we will be sitting on a throne in heaven and we'll be ruling over some other people there in heaven? Does this have this connotation? No, now notice the, the likeness. Jesus says to the overcomer, Will I grant to sit with me in my throne even as I overcame and am set down in my Father's throne? So the question that we need to ask is this. Who and what did Jesus overcome? If Jesus overcame something, what did he overcome? And who did he overcome? Because whatever he did, we're going to share in that, and that's going to be our hope of what our existence in the next world is going to be like. Now, how did Christ come to his throne? The Bible says he is now sitting at the right hand of God. Then how did he come to that right? Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and beginning in verse 20. How did Christ come to the right of being able to sit upon the throne of his Father? After he came, lived the sinless life, died, was buried and rose again, he ascended back to the right hand of God. Now beginning in 1 Corinthians 15:20, we read these words. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ that is coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he hath put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. Now here Christ is reigning, and he's going to reign until all of his enemies have been subdued. So the question should now be asked, well, what kind of enemies does Jesus Christ have? Who are the enemies through which Christ is going to rule and reign over, and how is he going to do this? The next verse gives us that answer. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. I hope that we can concentrate upon this now for the remainder of the message this morning. Christ's enemies are not Nikita Khrushchev in the flesh. Christ's enemies of his kingdom is not Adolf Hitler 
in the flesh. Now listen and hear me carefully. The enemies of Jesus Christ are sin, suffering, and death. And the last enemy that shall be conquered is death. And that shall be conquered through the resurrection. So that what Christ is dealing with in the gospel and what he is overthrowing is not some political system of this world. Christ is not coming just to overthrow communism or socialism or democracy or and put up his own political system. Christ's enemies are not flesh and blood. And, beloved, our enemies are not flesh and blood. We war not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, Paul would tell us. So that through the gospel, Christ has conquered the power of Satan, sin, and death, and now has ascended back to the throne. You see, when Christ died on the cross, Satan thought that he had somehow frustrated the purpose of God. And Satan, the arch enemy, thought that he had obtained the victory. But three days and three nights later, while Christ rose from the grave as a victor, a victor over what? Over the power of sin, because he became sin for us who knew no sin over the suffering of death, and over the penalty of death, and thereby he is the victor. Now he can give life to those. And he has ascended to the right hand of God, and now then he rules and reigns there until finally the last enemy that shall be subdued is death, and that shall be conquered when the resurrection of his people take place. So this is how Christ ascended to his throne. Now, John tells us in Revelation that to he that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne. So if Christ's ascension is through the gospel and he's now reigning over sin, suffering, and death, then what is our hope? What are we to, how can we expected, be expected to be rewarded when we enter into the presence of God? What are we going to receive? Is there going to be just primarily a lot of gold and silver? Is that your hope of heaven? Is your hope of a great mansion? Is it in some material carnal hope? Or is your hope the same that Jesus Christ possesses when he is now ruling and reigning over sin, suffering, and death? Well, how then does the believer come to the throne? If we can be made a partaker and can be enabled to sit with Christ on his throne, how do we get to that throne? Now look in this same chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 51. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. You nursery keepers, that would be a good text for you to put over your, uh, your doors uh, downstairs in the nursery. You think about that for a moment. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. If you don't get that, well, I'll tell it to you what the meaning is after, after the service this morning, Okay. But Paul says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, 
Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written. Now listen carefully. Death is swallowed up in victory. Did you get that? The last enemy that shall be destroyed is what? Death. And death shall be swallowed up in victory. So that Paul says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If Christ was victorious over sin, suffering, and death, and now then he reigns over them as a conqueror, and they are his victims, that is, he now rules over them from his throne in heaven, then what is our hope? And, and Paul would encourage us to see that our hope is to ascend to that same throne where we shall be made partaker of the person of Christ, to where we also shall reign over sin, suffering, and death. So that while God is a spirit, and he blesses us spiritually, he gives us spiritual rewards. That is, we are made victors. Now, the world looks at us today as Christians, and they say, why, what have you people ever accomplished? What throne have you ever ruled over? And in fact, we find the picture of Christianity of God's people down through the ages described in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, and it's one which seemingly is defeat after defeat. We see that they were sawn asunder. They were thrown to the beast. And the world says, where is your mighty king you're talking about? Where is your victor? You talk about Jesus as your king, and yet all of his people are suffering. Where is this mighty victor? And that's the same thing that they would point out that while Jesus Christ was in the grave. They thought that he had been defeated. But my friend, after three days and three nights, Christ showed where his real kingdom was. And it was over the power of sin, suffering, and death. And it was through this mighty victory that he accomplished through the gospel that he now imparts life unto his people so that one day they also shall reign with him upon his throne over what? Sin, suffering, and death. And this is one of the hopes which we have. Now, before we leave this point in, in uh, the book of Matthew, chapter 25 and verse 23. There's a very pertinent scripture which I think needs to be examined in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 23. This has to do with the parable in the, of the talents. You've probably heard this many, many times. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of what? Thy Lord. Now let me pose you a question today. Maybe you've thought of it. Maybe you haven't. What is this good and faithful servant going to be made a ruler over? Now notice it is not people, for Jesus says you have been faithful over a few things. Not persons, but objects. And because you have been faithful in this life over a few things, I'm going to make you a ruler over 
many things in contrast. Is it not one of the basis of the Christian teaching that he that would be the greatest must make himself a servant unto others? So certainly not in this life can I say that I have ruled over so many people, and therefore in the next life I'm hopeful of ruling over many people. If it is not people, then what is it? And my friend, when you take the gospel through the scriptures, you see that what I have by the grace of God in this life been enabled to rule over a few of my lust and my sins, which do so easily beset me, envy, strife, and grief, and things within, greed within my heart. But bless God, one day there's going to come a time in which that I'm going to be made perfect in Christ Jesus, and I shall rule over all of them. In other words, that what I was able to accomplish here through God's grace in glory, I shall rule over all of the lust of my heart, the flesh which does so easily beset me. Now, in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 17, as Christ has some enemies, what enemies do we have as Christians? You husbands, uh, what enemies do you have? Is it your wife? Is that your enemy? No, you may have disagreements there, but that's not your enemy, because our warfare is not against flesh and blood. We have a warfare that deals with the minds of men, the thoughts and intents of the heart. And that's why one of the challenges for this age is for Christians to see that what we are warring against is the philosophies of this world. Satan and all of his teachings that would lead men astray from the gospel of Jesus Christ and that's why that our hope is to not take a sword and go out and make everybody a Christian by force. But we take conquering over those through the preaching of the gospel. And that's a conflict in the mental and area and within the heart. Now, what are our enemies? First John chapter 2, verse 15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away in the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. What are the enemies of the Christian? The world, the flesh, and the devil. And that's quite a warfare for that you and I are in. And today, you and I, to some degree, through the grace of God, we are made victors over some of these areas in our life, but not of perfection. But one day when we are removed from this life and we are taken into the next, into that state of glory, we will never again have a selfish desire in the heart. It shall all be a perfect desire for God's glory. We shall never again have to lust after that which is forbidden. Never again shall we have a desire for greed for that which does not belong unto us. So that what our enemies are here, it is not in the fleshly or the carnal or the material realm. Our enemies are with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And that's what we war against, our warfare. Now because of this, that we have been blessed by Christ, 
through the gospel that he, what he has accomplished, he's going to reward his people in a new state where they shall never have to contend with these evils again, this gives the Christian his hope. I want you to, for closing thoughts, now turn to Hebrews chapter 12, if you would. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. Now listen carefully to this text. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy, now bear that in mind, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now I hope that I accomplished nothing more this morning. I can bring this to a conclusion in your thoughts at this time. Jesus Christ, when he was about to go to the cross, looked beyond that cross and saw great joy, great satisfaction, in that he would despise the shame and of that cross and would one day beyond that cross reign as a victor upon his throne. Now I call your attention to this. Jesus stepped to the throne by way of the cross. There is no reigning apart from the cross. And Jesus, when he saw that he was going to go to the cross, looked beyond that cross and for the joy that was beyond, he endured the cross, despised the shame, and is now set down on the right hand of God. Now, there as a victor. But what then is our hope? That text we read there in Matthew chapter 25. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I'll make thee ruler over many. Now, listen. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. What is the hope of the Christian? What is the great expectation that lies out ahead of us? What is that that pushes us on to go on beyond the crosses of this life? Those disappointments, those pains, those failures, seeing our plans evaporate before us, what keeps us pressing on? Because there's a joy which is set before us. And what is that joy? That as Christ now is set down on the throne of God, so every one who possesses this hope shall also sit upon that throne and rule and reign over sin, suffering, and death. I've brought this out this morning for this primary reason. This is the spiritual gospel. Much of what is preached today is a carnal gospel. It is carnal in that its main source is on the temporary and the material and the physical. And many people have a hope that if I become a Christian, I believe in Jesus, then one day I'll have all of this gold and silver that I don't have right here now. And they're given a carnal hope. And that's all that they have. But all that I can offer you this morning is what Peter offered to that lame man there lying outside the temple. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give unto thee.
And Christ has commissioned me as a minister of the gospel to your point to tell you and others around about that he is a mighty victor and that those who are united through faith in him shall experience all that which he is now presently experiencing. And so then we would close with this text that we read at the start of our message. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That is, as Christ is now living and reigning on the throne, so our hope is also. And every man that has this hope purifies himself, even as Christ is pure. Where your treasure is, or where your heart is, there your heart, your treasure is also. If you do not really possess Jesus Christ this morning and have this hope of enjoying eternal life, that is, an existence apart from sin, not only those who are around us in sin, but that heart that is within us, I doubt very seriously if you got very excited about what we just had to say. If your hope is in something carnal, I doubt very seriously if you'll ever get very excited and enthused about the hope that we have in Jesus Christ because his hope is within the spiritual realm. And if it disappoints you that in heaven that you're not going to have five people that you didn't like here in this life to be able to rule over and them to shine your shoes, and that the thing that you're going to have to rule over is your own lust and your own flesh, and that shall be a state of perfection, I hope that doesn't disappoint you. I hope that your hope of heaven is not to have a place where you can tell somebody what to do and when to do it because you couldn't do it here. But I hope that your hope of heaven is that you're being in the presence of God, you can be able to dominate and rule over all of the lust and the affections that you could not conquer here in this experience. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him, how? In spirit and in truth. So the more spiritual we are in our worship, the more like God we become. And the more like God we become, the more pure we become. So every man has this hope, is going to be experiencing a purified life until finally that day of perfection shall come. Let's stand together.